Saints for Home and School, 6. Saint Anthony of Padua, 1195-1231, Orator and Wonder Worker. Feast is June 13th. Bring me an atlas, Jack, please, said Mr. O'Connor. I'm reading Saint Anthony. And he's traveling too fast for me, Jack laughed. He's traveling too fast for you? What does that mean, Dad? Well, I've read only half the story, and already he's been in so many different places that I'm lost. Give me that atlas so I can see where they are. Now Jack, after falling two or three times and knocking seven or eight books off the shelf, at last returned with the atlas. What map do you want, Dad? he asked. Portugal first, Jack. St. Anthony was born in Lisbon in 1195. Find that city for me. Where is it? the boy replied, as he showed the map to his dad. It's on the Tigus River. Yes, and this book says that it's built on seven hills, one above the other, and that is twelve miles from the sea. That its streets are lined with many beautiful trees, and that its harbor is one of the largest and safest in the world. Did St. Anthony often go to the harbor to see the ships, Dad? I suppose he did, Jack, replied Mr. O'Connor. The Portuguese were fond of sailing. But we do know that his parents were wealthy nobles who lived right outside the cathedral and sent their son to the cathedral school. When he completed his education, he joined the order of St. Augustine near Lisbon. But continued, Mr. O'Connor, his relatives and friends came to see him so often that he asked to be moved to another house of the order at Coimbra. Can you find that place, Jack? Yes, Dad. It's about 100 miles north of Lisbon. How long did St. Anthony stay there? Eight years, Jack. He worked hard at Cumbria with great attention to prayer and study. During that time, he was also ordained. Here's another important point about him, Mr. O'Connor continued. He was a guest master of the house. He had to welcome visitors. Kings and princes often called at the monasteries in those days. He was the, it was the saint's duty to welcome them. He must have had good manners, Jack observed. Yes, replied Mr. O'Connor, but the poor received the same kindness from him as the kings did. Why did the saint leave Cambra? Jack asked. He wanted to be a martyr. One day the bodies of four Franciscan friars were brought to the church near the saint's house. They had been missionaries in Morocco and had been put to death, there for their faith. Ferdinand resolved to leave his order, become a Franciscan, and go to Morocco. He, too, wished to die for the faith. You said, Ferdinand, Daddy, don't you mean Anthony? No, Jack, replied Mr. O'Connor. His name was Ferdinand. He received the name Anthony when he put on the brown robe of the Franciscans. Did he go to Morocco? Jack inquired. He did, the father answered. But when he arrived there, he was disappointed because the leader of the Moors had fallen sick and no longer felt like killing people for being Christians. Besides, St. Anthony fell sick himself. When he was well again, he took a ship bound for Portugal. But, continued Mr. O'Connor, the winds caught the sails of the vessel and blew it through the Mediterranean. St. Anthony landed at Messina in Sicily. Find that place for me, Jack. Just across the street from Italy, Jack answered. 
and he held the map so his father could see it. From there he went to a meeting of the Franciscans at Assisi in Italy, Mr. O'Connor said, and there saw St. Francis himself. Did he need a passport to go to different countries? Jack asked. Oh, no, Mr. O'Connor answered. People were free and easy in those days. They did have no trouble with such things. The reason was that all nations in Europe were Catholic at that time, and therefore united. What happened to St. Anthony at Assisi, Dad? He asked the permission to join the monastery near Forley. The father replied, his request was granted. There he spent his time in penance and prayer, never saying a word about his great knowledge. But one day some young men were ordained to the priesthood at Forley, and a large crowd attended. The superior invited several visiting priests to preach a sermon, but all refused, saying they were not prepared. The superior, however, was determined to have someone speak, and not expecting much, commanded St. Anthony to address the gathering. Imagine the surprise of all when they heard this humble priest preach a sermon the like of which they had probably never heard before. How he filled their hearts with love for holy things! How clearly he explained the scriptures! As his superiors listened to him, they received that henceforth they decided that henceforth Anthony should be sent out on a, as a missionary. What places did he visit, Dad? I have found a sissy and Forley. In 1222 and in 1223 he preached in northern Italy at such places as Rimini and Padua. Large crowds gathered to hear him, and thousands, wherever he spoke, made their peace with God. Miracles, too, he performed thus proving the truth of his doctrines. Then we find him leaving Italy for France about the year 1224. Here he preached in Limoges, Montpellier, Toulouse, Bourges, and Brive, and other places where thousands of people had gone over to the Albigensian heresy. A heresy is taking a truth like the Catholic faith, and changing some parts of it, like saying God doesn't love you, or something that isn't true, and that's called a heresy. The preaching and miracles of the saint, however, brought very large numbers back to the faith. Do you want the large map of France now, Dad? asked Jack. I have found only one of the towns you mentioned. Yes, let me find those places, replied Mr. O'Connor. I want to catch up with St. Anthony. When he had located them, Mr. O'Connor went on with the story. After spending three years in France, he said, St. Anthony returned to Italy. Shortly afterwards, we find him at Padua. That's in the north, near Venice, Jack remarked, with his finger on the map. At Padua, Mr. O'Connor continued, the saint put an end to the practice of casting people into jail when they couldn't pay their debts. He also went to Verona, where a cruel tyrant had captured many prisoners, and going to see the man, Anthony boldly asked him to let them go. In the summer of 1231, the saint's health failed, and he felt death approaching, so he returned to a quiet spot outside Padua, there to prepare for the end. On June 13th, he passed peacefully to his eternal reward. 
At his tomb, many wonderful miracles took place. A boy and a girl were raised to life, and numerous cures were granted. Less than a year after the death of the saint, he was canonized by Pope Gregory the Ninth in 1232. Why does the statue of St. Anthony show him holding the child Jesus? Jack asked. Because one day, when the saint was praying in his room, the infant Jesus appeared to him, put his little arms around St. Anthony's neck, and kissed him tenderly. As a child kisses his father, St. Anthony in turn kissed the divine child. This wonderful privilege was given to the saint because he kept his soul free from even the smallest sins. I must read that book, Daddy, whenever you're through with it, said Jack as he paused. The life of St. Anthony is very interesting. It is indeed, said Mr. O'Connor. The book tells many things that I did not mention. St. Aloysius Gonzaga, 1568-1591, Patron of Youth. Feast is June 21st. Three thousand soldiers resting after their morning drill in front of Castelgliani Castle were suddenly startled by the boom of a cannon. Who fired that gun? asked the commanding officer in alarm. Go and see who did it. Some soldiers rushed to the spot. There they found a very much frightened little boy, Aloysius Gonzaga, only four years old. It was he who had loaded the cannon with powder and had then set it off. Luckily, he had escaped being struck by the heavy gun when it jumped back after the shot. The boy's father, Marquis Ferdinand Gonzaga, was very rich and powerful Spanish noble. He owned many thousands of acres of land and lived in Gonzaga Castle at Castagliani. After seventy miles east of Milan, the northern part of Italy in which this city is situated belonged to Spain from 1535 to 1706, and hence many Spanish nobles lived there. Aloysius was the eldest son of the Marquis Gonzaga and his wife, Lady Martha. The father was most anxious to see Aloysius become a leader of armies. Some day, he used to tell the boy, you will be a great soldier as so many of the Gonzagas have been. When I die, you will be the head of the family and you will own this castle and all these fine lands and you will be rich and powerful. Is that why you give me this little uniform and sword? asked Aloysius. Yes, my boy. I want you to become a good soldier and learn all about war as soon as you can. Aloysius Gonzaga did become a good soldier, but it was a soldier of Christ he became. Christ was the captain he chose to follow, and the cross of Christ was the standard of the army in which he enlisted. No earthly glory did he seek for earthly glory fades quickly. Aloysius set his heart on gaining the everlasting glory of paradise. At seven years of age, he set special times each day for prayer. Not only that, but he spent long hours on his knees, and besides, always knelt up straight. That was hard for a little boy, but the soldier of Christ must not be afraid to make himself suffer. Aloysius was not afraid. His parents sent him to school in the old city of Florence, where for centuries the best artists of Italy had painted beautiful pictures and had adorned cathedrals, churches, and palaces with delightful color and harmony.
architects, sculptors, goldsmiths, silversmiths, and iron makers, and stonemasons had labored their long years to erect in honor of God those splendid buildings which visitors to Florence even today admire so much. Aloysius loved all the beautiful things he saw in the city. They helped him think about heaven. One day, as he was kneeling before a picture of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the Church of the Annunciation, he said, Most Holy Mother, I promise your divine Son that I will always lead a life of chastity. Never in his whole life did he commit even the smallest sin against holy purity. The great Cardinal St. Robert Bellarmine, who knew Aloysius well, declared that the young man was so pure as to that he was like an angel in human form. He carefully guarded his eyes, said Cardinal Bellarmine. He also fasted and did other penances to make himself strong against temptation. There was nothing weak about Aloysius. Christ was his captain, and it was Christ who said, If any man will come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. These words were the marching orders Aloysius obeyed. Holiness of life gave him a bright mind. He made rapid progress in his studies, but by studying, practice, and composition, he soon became a good author. His writings about the angels contain not only beautiful thoughts, but also in the best style of language. About the year 1580, when Aloysius was twelve years old, he went to visit St. Charles Borromeo, the holy archbishop of Milan. Much pleased with the brightness and wisdom of the boy, St. Charles said to him, Do you go to the sacraments often? Your Excellency, replied Aloysius, I haven't yet had the joy of receiving my first Holy Communion. Then I shall give you Holy Communion myself, St. Charles answered. Thus one great saint gave another great saint, our blessed Lord, the heroic captain, whom both were following. The next year Aloysius was sent to be a page at the court of Philip II, King of Spain. There he had to fight hard in order to be good, but brave soldier that he was, he put on the white armor of Holy Communion, which he received often, and strengthened his soul by fervent prayer. By this time, of course, he had trained himself by much practice and had learned to pray with complete attention and great devotion. At fifteen, he had told his parents that he wished to be a Jesuit priest. Lady Martha was pleased, but the Marquis Ferdinand became very angry. "'What makes you think of doing that?' asked the Marquis. First thing you know, I'll have you whipped. You should think of getting married. Don't you realize that I want you to be the next Marquis of Gonzaga? I care nothing for the riches and honors of this world, father. Let my brother Rudolph take my place.' The Marquis was astonished at this answer, but was still determined not to let Aloysius go. "'You shall take part with the nobles, who will ride through the city tomorrow,' replied his father. "'See that you put on your best clothes. "'Don't bring disgrace on the Gonzaga family by remaining away from the show.' Next day the great procession went along the streets of Milan. Knights and their followers, dressed in beautiful uniforms, rode on splendid horses. Suddenly the people saw an old nag stumbling along, 
and who should be riding on it but Aloysius, son of the Marquis Gonzaga? The astonished onlookers laughed and jeered at the strange sight. This laughter hurt the young man a great deal, because to be laughed at is not pleasant. But Aloysius rode on the old broken-down horse to appear foolish, and thus do penance. This proved to the Marquis that there was no use trying to prevent his son from becoming a priest. "'How sorry I am to see you leave,' he said. "'But since you believe that God calls you, then go, and with my blessing.' Aloysius then sighed over his rights to his brother Rudolph, and bade farewell to his family. "'I go to Rome,' he said, "'by command of Father Aquaviva, superior general there. I shall have the happiness of being admitted to the Jesuit order. Now at last he was free to give every moment of his day entirely to God. On being shown to his narrow room, he exclaimed, This is my rest forever, for I have chosen it. In the monastery he thought all the others better than himself. With the greatest joy he obeyed every command of his superiors, although he was a prince of the great Gonzaga family. He washed the dishes, swept the floor, and was glad to do any task, no matter how humble it was. Christ our Saviour was poor and lowly, said Aloysius. It is not an honor to work at lowly tasks just as he did. His great captain had helped the poor. Aloysius would do the same. Therefore, after obtaining permission from his superiors, he went from house to house through the streets of Rome and begged food for the needy. Romans soon came to know him well. There goes Aloysius with his old patched soutane and his bag of bread, people would say, as they watched him pass along. While many wealthy men sat in their comfortable houses and thought, yes, the poor should be helped, but did nothing to help them. Aloysius was out doing something. He was a doer of the word, and not a hearer only. Meanwhile, he continued his studies for the priesthood and the goal of his desires. How he longed for the hour when, with his hands freshly anointed, he would go to the altar of God and there offer up the holy sacrifice of Mass. His keen mind eagerly drank in the knowledge required for one who would become an officer in the army of the great captain. On a few occasions, however, his studies were interrupted, for he was sent out as a peacemaker. His old home at Castiglione saw him again. There he made peace between his brother and an enemy. The whole city, attracted by his reputation for holiness, came out to see him, and his visit there resembled the return of a great conquering hero. Men and women knelt in the streets as he passed. Do not pay any honors to me, Aloysius told them, but go, confess your sins, and receive the blessed Eucharist. Next day hundreds of citizens followed his advice, and the churches were crowded with those who went to Holy Communion. But the holy young man was not to become a priest. The plague broke out in Rome, and the soldier of the great captain went into the front ranks of the battle against the dreaded disease. On those strong shoulders of his he carried the victims of the scourge, and placed them in the hospital. Then he waited upon them with his own hands, brought them comfort and consolation in their sufferings, and prepared them for a happy death. 
Now when a soldier goes in the front ranks of a battle, he knows that at any moment death may strike him down. Was Aloysius then to die? Yes, on the field of battle it was to lay down his life. He became a victim of the plague. The disease acted quickly. Death was rapidly approaching. Was Aloysius afraid? Did he lay himself down with regret that his life was to be cut short? Not at all. There was joy in his heart and a smile on his face. Cardinal Bellarmine came to the bedside and read the prayers for the dying. While I read, he said, Aloysius answered as if the two of us were praying for someone else. He desired to die and be with Christ. The end came on June twenty-first, 1591, and the strong soul of Aloysius was joyfully to join his great captain. In 1891, three hundred years after the saint's death, Pope Leo the Thirteenth declared him patron of youth. Since then, thousands of boys and girls have asked their patron for his powerful help. Moreover, his life was has been studied in many schools to teach pupils how to imitate his virtues. In one school not long ago, the teacher said to her class, St. Aloysius is patron of youth, and therefore one of your special protectors. How would you like to write a letter to him? The idea of writing a letter to a saint was new to the pupils, so they enjoyed it very much. Some wrote long letters, and others wrote short ones, but strange to say, the shortest letter of all was the best. Here it is. Dear Aloysius, Our teacher has just read for us the story of your life. I wish, like you, to follow Christ. How shall I do it? Well, for one thing, I am going to guard my eyes as you guard yours. There are bad moving pictures, but I will not go to see them. There are bad newspapers and magazines, but I will not read them. There are bad books, but I will never look at them. I will use my eyes to look at flowers and stars and the other beautiful things God wants me to see, but I will never look at anything which might lead me into sin. Pray for me that I will keep my promises. Your faithful soldier, Robert Moore. St. John Vianney, 1786-1859, Parish Priest of Ours. Feast day is August 9th. This is the story of a boy who could not pass his examination. His name was John Vianney. He was born at Dardley, a village not far from Lyons, France, on May 8th, on May 8th 1786. Although he was slow to learn, he never gave up hope but kept struggling on. In fact, he worked so hard that he became a great saint. As a boy working with a spade in his father's field, he often said to himself, That's the way you must cultivate your soul. You must clear away the weeds so that it may be fit to receive the good seeds of Jesus Christ. After the day's work, he used to teach others their prayers and catechisms. Some people laughed and joked, at him because he did this, but he paid no attention to them. He knew he was doing right. John studied for several years with Father Bailey, parish priest at Eculi. He also spent some time at a seminary. In the year 1814, he was given permission to try his examination for the priesthood. But he was so much afraid of the examiners that he was not able to answer their questions. He therefore failed. 
what a keen disappointment to him this failure was. He offered his sorrow to God. One of the examiners, much pleased with the young man's modesty and gentleness, made inquiries about him. He found that John was very pious and good. So the examiner said, I will take upon myself the responsibility of admitting him to holy orders. Therefore, on August ninth, 1815, about two months after the Battle of Waterloo, John had the great happiness of being ordained to the priesthood. The young priest was then sent to be Father Bailey's curate. He was much pleased to be back with his old friend who had taught him so many lessons. His first act of charity as a priest was to give a poor widow all the money he had saved to buy himself a soutane. He was not satisfied with giving a part of his money. He had to give it all. For some time the two priests worked together in great charity. Then they had to say goodbye to each other, for Father Bailey was on his deathbed. Continue to serve God with courage, said the old man to his curate. Always love the good master, and we shall meet in heaven. After Father Bailey's death, Father Vianney was sent to the little parish of ours. People here do not love God, said the bishop. I hope you will be able to bring them back to the practice of their religion. As Father Vianney did not want any farewell party or presence, he stole away by night to his new parish. When he arrived at ours, he found a very poor chapel. Most of the churches in France had been destroyed during the French Revolution, which began in 1789. Not only that, but the faith had been almost driven from the hearts of the people. Father Vianney found the inhabitants of ours did not care about religion. So he began to visit them in their homes. He treated them with kindness. He blessed their children. He spoke to them of the love of God. He was not, it was not long until they caught some of his spirit and began to attend devotions regularly. But he was not satisfied with preaching to his parishioners. He believed in doing penance for them. That is the way to win souls to God, he said, one day to one of his brother priests. His food consisted of a few boiled potatoes or a little bread soaked in milk, and he ate only once a day. Often he would sleep only one hour after going to bed at midnight. At one o'clock he would rise, go to the chapel, pray for a long time, and then start off walking to some church six or seven miles away. There he would hear confessions. Thousands chose him as their confessor. Once when he went to the parish of St. Bernard to preach a mission, all the people of the neighborhood left their work to be present at the services. They told their masters they would gladly give up their wages if necessary for the time they spent listening to Father Vianney. Soon large crowds began coming to ours to see him. Along with them were scholars, rich men, poor men, people from every walk of life. He knew even the secret thoughts of his visitors and could tell them what they needed before they asked him. One day a man who had lost his faith came to argue with St. John Vianney. I refuse to argue with you, said the priest. Kneel down and make your confession. What a mockery it will be, replied the visitor. I do not believe in religion. We shall see, answered Father Vianney. Go ahead with your confession. When the visitor arose after telling the sins of his life, such a feeling of peace came into his soul that ever afterwards he was a very devout Catholic. 
Another day the priest met a hunter who had a clever dog. How sorry I feel for you, said he to the hunter, because your soul is not as beautiful as your dog. Father Vianney was obliged to hear so many confessions that he had scarcely time to rest. He also suffered much from the cold. He seldom allowed himself the luxury of a fire. His long hours in the confessional often chilled him through and through. Sometimes I have to search for my poor foot, he would say. But his greatest sufferings were caused by the devil. This enemy, seeing how much good the saint was doing, persecuted him for over thirty years. He tried every way to discourage the holy man in the works of saving souls. Once, when Father Vianney was giving a mission in a neighboring parish, doors and windows began to rattle, and the whole house seemed to be falling to pieces. The other people rushed to the priest's room, but found him sleeping quietly. Get up, they cried. The house is falling down. Do not be afraid, he replied quietly. It's just another of Grappen's tricks. Who is Grappen? they asked. Grappen is the devil, replied the priest with a smile. One day, when he returned from a visit, he was told there had been a fire in his room, and that his bed had been burned. That's old Grappen again, said Father Vianney. But he was not cute enough to set fire to it when I was in the bed. In the little parish of ours, the holy man built a house for the orphans. He had a great deal of trouble paying for it. But whenever he needed money or food, both were supplied, and often in miraculous ways. One day the sisters in charge of the orphanage had enough flour to make only two loaves of bread. Make the dough and put the yeast into it, said Father Vianney, and we shall trust God for the rest. Next day the dough increased while they were making it up into loaves. Instead of a small amount of bread, they had more than enough to feed their seventy orphans for a whole day. After a while the bishop appointed Father Vianney to a large parish. Each time the priest tried to go to the new parish, however, the river, saying, rose to such a height that it was impossible for him to leave. The people went to the bishop and asked that their priest should be left with them. When the bishop heard the remarkable story of the river rising so many times, he decided it was God's will that Father Vianney should stay there. Many miracles took place at ours. For example, a young girl who had been paralyzed for three years was instantly cured while the priest was saying Mass. In his humility, Father Vianney always said the cure was due to the intercession of St. Philomena. I have asked her not only to cure the bodies of people, he used to say, but also their souls, so they may gain eternal life. In these days, when we hear so much talk about cures of health, it is interesting to read what Father Vianney said. The time is short. I shall have plenty of time to take care of myself in heaven. Although he took very little rest and ate a very small amount of food each day, he lived to a fairly ripe old age. He was seventy-three when he died, on August fourth, 1859. He had spent forty years as parish priest at ours. He was canonized by Pope Pius the 11th on May 31st, 1925, and his feast day is kept by the church on August 9th. And yet, in Father Vianney's boyhood, he was called stupid and dull. Later, when he was priest, some people who thought themselves clever 
reminded the bishop that Father Vianney had not passed his examinations. Some even told the bishop that the pastor of ours was out of his mind. Whether he is learned or not, I do not know, replied the wise bishop, but I do know that he is an enlightened man. The End I really love the stories of the saint, and these are just a few of them. There are so many saints, it's crazy. And you can read about them, you could look them up, you could see if maybe your name is the same name as a saint. For example, I was named after um, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and Saint Anne, and Saint Catherine Labouret. So I like reading about their stories often. It's a good example for you because no matter how bad you see people around you acting, you don't have to act that way. You can stand up for what's right and you can live a good life and you'll be happier because you'll be at peace with God and peace with yourself. And people will, you know, profit a lot by your example of the good things that you do in life. So don't get discouraged if you um, see other people doing things that they shouldn't do, you can pray for them. You can ask God, hey, God, can you help them out? You know, I know that I'm not as good as I should be, but I hope that that person can be a better person because we want everybody to be good. So the next book I'm going to read, I've been wanting to read for a long time. It's called A Room for Kathy. It's about a little girl who really wants her own room. And this is what it says on the back of the book. How Kathy has always longed for a room of her own, and now it looks as if her dream will come true. For the Leonard family is moving to a big house with a room for Kathy, a room she doesn't have to share with her younger brother and sister. So that's next. It looks pretty exciting. Join me for that. Mm -hmm.